Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So that happened. This week, the ongoing crisis in the Eurozone has hit a new stage when Greek voters responded to their creditors' austerity or else demands with a resounding vote for or else. What's the best way to respond to German demands to make good on debts? Maybe it's to say, you go first, Germany. Meanwhile, at another table filled with negotiators and apparently string cheese and twizzlers, the nuclear talks between Iran and the United States continue. Could we be on the verge of a framework that will lead to an agreement, that will lead to an accord, that will lead to a deal, that will lead to the world not descending into war? The answer, obviously, is maybe? In addition, we've talked a lot about food stamps, but finally we're going to get to talk to a real live normal human American who recently had their food stamps cut. What is life like for them? Probably not good, but we'll find out specifically. Finally, what happens when two liberal punk rock musicians sit down with a conservative editor slash pundit to talk about the legacy of the Grateful Dead? I honestly have no idea, but we're about to find out. The Daily Caller's Tucker Carlson joins us to try to sell Arthur Delaney and Zach Carter on the virtues of jam band fandom. I'm Jason Lincolns. Along with Zach and Arthur, we'll be joined by Huffington Post reporter Daniel Marins and Jessica Schulberg. And here's what happened first. Guys, hey, 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 guys, we're back. Um, I don't. <laughs> is this gonna be the first segment? Oh, is it? Okay, <laughs> we're, this is this is already the first segment. All right, welcome to uh, <laughs> welcome to what we're now Boom. deciding in advance is the first segment of today's. So that happened. I'm Jason Lincoln's editor of Eat the Press. I'm joined by you know. Go ahead, go ahead. Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter. For the Huffington Post. And we have another bright and sparkling debutante. Daniel Marins. I'm a reporter at the Huffington Post. You pronounce right. your name, though, Daniel? It's actually pronounced Dan Morans, because that's cool to say. I, You know, and you're not the first to say it, but uh, I I accept all these, these. You can call me Zatch, because it's with an H. It's okay. No, we already established I'm, sure. I'm calling you Zacharias Musawi. <laughs> 20th hijacker. Oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, you're ready to, you're ready to enough, take the cockpit by storm. Funnily That's... enough, Zach does hijack a lot of discussions, and he usually does it using his shoes, which is like uh, kind of an ironic and weird coincidence. So uh, how's everyone doing? Great week, right? I don't know. My Independence Day. So, somewhat, so the drummer in my high school and college band used to, his nickname for me was Zacharias Musawi. And like, I just sort of like, <laughs> I forgot that I actually really hated it when people called me that. But like, I sort of, with Tom, I'd known him for so many years that eventually it became sort of a term of endearment. But yeah, I don't know if I'm ready to take we it. All, again. We all have friends who we're close enough to where it's cool if they t- <laughs> give us the nickname of a terrorist. Serial killer, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I was, my, Jason. Well, that's the kind of week I've been having, Jason. How the fuck has yours been? Glorious, man. <laughs> Glorious. It, it's been lovely. And, you know, I have to say the best part of the day is when I get that email at 630 in the morning as I'm rolling out of bed that says, the weather's awful. You're going to melt. 
This is the worst thing ever. It's the apocalypse and Sharknado combined. Yes. I mean, because that, that's literally Arthur's weather report every morning is it's muggy and horrible and also going to thunderstorm. But to be fair, that is actually the weather every yeah. day this week. No, it's, it's only terrible to learn that life is pain and a meaningless pit of voiding things. It's it's only bad if, if you realize that it's true. Oh boy, we are really brutal. really early in the podcast to be already at the life is pain part. <laughs> life is pain. Like I was gonna be like, yo, Carly Lloyd, that was dope Dude, what well, she did. Dan and I have been covering Greece and the shit there, and that if that doesn't make you feel like you know the bottom yeah. of the deep well of despair, I don't know what will. You're right. So that's what we're here to talk about today. First up, Greece. <laughs> Hope everyone had a great weekend because we're jumping to Greece and how uh, how how awful it is. But like to me, can I just say, to my mind, as bad as it is in Greece, I'm I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. Well, that makes one of us. But no, I'm, I'm not happy in that, but I'm happy that, I'm happy that the, uh, the, the Greeks uh, voted against austerity. Right, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like I, I'm 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 generically uh, sort of given to favor people who cause powerful institutions trouble, and so if the Greek yeah. if the Greeks are gonna like put the EU through another round of like shitty pain, I'm like, all right, that's cool. I can go with right. that. Sure, you you EU people, you can make everyone in oh. Greece live in shit. But at <laughs> least the people in Greece will give a bunch of rich people in the EU like a headache for a week. Right. So, so that and all isn't that all the best we're going to get out of this though? I, I, I think, in all honesty, though, what you've said is really resonates because there's a connection between what's going on in Greece Thank and let's you. say Thank what's you. going on with Bernie Sanders and in less favorable light, what's going on with some of the nastier populist movements all around the world, which is that. There are these centralized institutions that are making decisions that affect all of our lives and our pocketbooks and our wallets and, and okay, enough metaphors, but, um, and they've become unaccountable to the people that they're intended to represent. And sometimes the manifestations of the, the, of the rebellion against that are less elegant than others. And in some cases, it might take the form of the Front National in in France or the UK Independence Party, sort of the populist far right that that engage in race baiting. Um, And in other cases, it it might take the form of a left-wing government in Greece that that sort of maybe gave bombastic rhetoric, but all in all had have a position that's not all that different than the mainstream of economists here in the United States. That's right. And... And and really, we're elected to deliver for their people, and we're not allowed to do that at the negotiating table. And so they went back to their people and said, actually, if you guys really honor this de- democratic process, we're, we're going to come back with, with, with more power from our people. Now, admittedly, the rest of the Eurozone governments are going to say they represent democracies too, um, but they're also democracies that hold all the cards. And so, yeah, I mean, um, so, so to me, that that's the problem. Like this, this is all nice and happy and democracy is good and all of that shit. But look, the EU is not a series of democracies that are governing cooperatively. It is actually a very poorly regulated banking empire run by German elites. It is it is nothing else. The entire system that has taken place with the Greek austerity program has nothing to do with making Greece solvent on its debts. It has nothing to do with overspending in Greece. It has everything to do with poorly regulated banks in Germany and to a lesser extent France that lent a lot of money to Greece, which they shouldn't have lent, right. that would have gone bankrupt had they not been rescued by a Rube Goldberg-like uh, uh, bailout mechanism in which the EU 
printed money, gave it to Greece so that Greece could give it to the banks. Well, you know, and now that the banks are okay, all of these German governments are saying, you know what? Our banks, you know, sure, our banks are fine now, but but actually, hey, public, we didn't, like, do all this stuff with your tax dollars and stuff to save a bunch of rich bankers. We actually did it to save these lazy-ass Greeks in Greece, and they're not owning up to the fact that they've they've... <laughs> They've created this system you, to save their own banks, you and now they're, now they're blaming the Greeks for it. You know I don't naturally side with people just because they lend money to other people. I tend to think of a loan as like an agreement between two idiots who are each betting that the one is a bigger idiot than <laughs> I mean, the other. Right, right. And, 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 and Well, I mean, uh, the analogy that I like to think is do you blame the – you know, if you think that, that Greece was too strung out on easy credit – up until the cr- up until the crash, <laughs> like they're the then, first person to ever show up and be like, "Whoa, this money's too easy." Right, and 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 <laughs> do, and do you blame the user or do you blame the pusher? Exactly, you know, and 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 sort of the narrative that 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 Germany in particular has has pushed, and 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 frankly, they set the tone because they're the most powerful country, the largest economy, and everything about it is not unlike the narrative that I think has been pushed by the far right in this country about homeowners. So, for example, for example, the idea that there were all, I mean, the rant, the Rick Santelli rant that, that became like the, 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 the creed de cœur of the, of the Tea Party movement. Right. We, we shouldn't be bailing out these losers that, okay, well, you know, maybe save the banks because it's the financial system. But homeowners who were so irresponsible and took out these loans when in many cases they were predatory loans. Right. Um, and, and so it's really a similar we, – we've really seen – you know, And, it, and it, even, even when they aren't predatory, I mean, let, let's, let's make a distinction here. Even when the banks are, are, are not explicitly trying to steal from people, it's still the job – like there's this big misconception I think in, in mainstream sort of public conceptions of how the economy works that, that banks are somehow charitable foundations, that they provide you with a loan out of the goodness of their hearts, <laughs> right? That, that, yeah. that If you ask for a loan that you can't pay back, you're a bad person but the, because you, you took advantage of that nice – nice banker over there. Banks do not make loans because they are charities. They make loans because they want to make money off of them. And even if they're not actively preying on you, it is their job to make sure that the loan that they issue gets paid back. And when they fuck it up and the loan can't get paid back, that's on the bank just as much as it's on you for not being able to pay it back. Well, one of the fun things about this week um, was our, our good friend, <laughs> uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, he showed up in an interview with the German newspaper Die Zeit, which translates to the Zeit. I believe it translates to being in time. Basically, yes, exactly. So, ba- so basically, uh, Piketty faced the argument that essentially was like, well, why, you know, generous Germany deserves to have its debts repaid. And, and Piketty basically said, Dus hypocrites sont plein de mouth. Basically, <laughs> right back at, right back at, Desite. Um, specifically, specifically, he was asked, um, uh, "Are you trying to depict state?" The Desite asked him, "Are you trying to depict states that don't pay back their debts as winners?" And he said, "Germany is just such a state. History shows us two ways for the indebted to leave delinquency. One was demonstrated by the British Empire in the 19th century after its expensive wars with Napoleon. It's the slow method that's now being recommended to Greece. That empire repaid its debts through strict budgetary discipline." It worked, but took an extremely long time. For over 100 years, the British gave up 2 to 3% of their economy to repay its debts, which is more than they spent on schools and education. That didn't have to happen, and it shouldn't happen today. The second method is much faster. Germany proved it in the 20th century. Essentially, it consists of three components, inflation, a special tax on private wealth, and lots of debt relief. And that's how we got Germany through post-World War II. 
and remember, the, we wrote off what, what? What? What do we write off? Something like how? How much debt? Of, shitload of money. It doesn't yeah. matter. They, they, these, never paid these it back. Don't Germans never paid it back, and it's cool. It's cool because the the alternative was to like keep an angry poor country constantly bucking at the prospect of going back to war with Germany. Another example that he didn't mention is how the Allies treated Germany after World War One, which was much like what's going on with Greece now in, in that there were insurmountable debts that many of these countries have been complicit in and they basically forced the German economy under creating political turmoil and we know how that worked out. <laughs> Did not work out well. It worked out very poorly. And but you can see in that interview with Piketty, his interviewer is very combative. He seems he seems kind of offended. It's maybe a translation issue, but but the, the interviewer I don't think it was a translation issue. The, the interviewer seems seems genuinely offended. Like, wait a minute, but these these lazy Greeks, like like you're seriously saying that that we hardworking Germans that our situation in the 1950s is in any way comparable to these lazy Greeks today? And you can just see that there the the way that this bank bailout scheme has been pitched to the German public by by German elites, by by the political powers in Germany, has been to demonize not just the Greek government, but the Greek people. Right. And 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 so politically it is now so toxic in Germany to do anything anything sane for, for Greece that, that, that the leaders are just not willing the leaders in Germany are not willing to 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 take that that leap. Even though there I mean this is not we said earlier this is like mainstream economics, like what they're asking for in Greece. You know, this is sort of like middle of the road, like debt relief is something that just everybody agrees to. It's not just mainstream. There is literally no economic theory, no neoclassical theory, no neoliberal yeah. theory, which says after six years of a crippling depression, more austerity is the way out. And no one says that. But you're right about that. I feel like I feel that like this has been sold to not just Ger- Germans, but to the world that Greek Greece is in the situation it's in because the average Greek John Q. Middle class or lower class Greek. Let's call him Somehow, John Katsopoulos. Or... John Katsopoulos. Um, Yanni Katsopoulos. <laughs> Yanni. Um, Let's call him Yanis Varoufakis. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, he and all his middle class and lower class friends went out and fucked it up for everybody. When really, it was German elites, German lawmakers along over a course of many years living high on the hog, getting it done like this. Now, the new government has made an offer to uh, to cut pensions by a certain amount and to also levy attacks on business. And I think they also wanted to uh, cut back on military spending. And I think that was rejected by the EU solely because they recognized that it was like, whoa, 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 you're going to like actually ca- put the burden on someone who's not the your poor? Nah, nah, that's right. not going to happen. And that the, 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 the illusion that Greece has offered no means out offered no sacrifice is false. They have. They just are not willing to place all the burden on the sum total of the Greek population who didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the counterproposal from the creditors that prompted Greece to announce the referendum, first of all, was marked up in red ink That's publicly r- in a very humiliating fashion. Yeah. And it insisted, as you said, um, not only on these across-the-port pension cuts, including a removal of, of a supplemental benefit for poor pensioners, but also a major increase in the VAT, the value-added tax, which is like a sales tax, to 23%. I mean, the Greeks didn't want it on their hotels because tourism is one of their core industries. Um, And they've more or less come back to the table saying, we'll accept some of these things, but we want debt relief. Because what debt relief would allow them to do is, maybe not this year, but maybe the next year or the year after that, um, 
spe- effectively not have to have the kinds of surplus targets that they're being asked to have. Because if you're taking, if you're taking all that money and saving it at a time when you have such a, a gap in demand, a gap in consumption, then that will continue to keep impl- unemployment incredibly high. It may actually drive it even higher, push people out of their homes, increase poverty and everything like that. So yeah, I think that 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 is sort of the variable that I that I'm looking for in negotiations. Will they get this long-term debt relief? And so far, all that they all that we've gotten from the creditors, aside from the IMF, which has stepped up and said we're not going to pony up any more money if you guys don't give Greece some kind of debt relief. All that we've gotten from the creditors is implement these reforms, and we'll talk about it again in October. Yeah. And 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 they, they 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 made the same promise in 2012, and nothing ever came of it. And and the Germans have basically responded to the referendum by saying, oh, now we need even more. You know, I mean, because we, we've lost all trust in you. Uh, prior to the referendum, they were saying, we're not going to speak to this government at all, this democratically elected government. So um, the, the state of the, of the debate is, is really fraught, really toxic. And yes, absolutely, the Greeks have, have, have been forthright in, in, their, in their offerings. Um, it's also important to understand that... Um, the Germans are now accusing the Greeks of, by prolonging this negotiating process, they're accusing the Greeks of prolonging the negotiating process by not giving in, and therefore by uh, putting their economy further in the dumps, and which, which makes their debts even higher. It makes it even harder for them to, to pay their debts and makes yeah. it so that they now even need to pay more money. But here's the thing, is that through the European Central Bank, that is why the Greek economy has been squeezed throughout this process. Right. So they could, they could stop at, at any point here. The European Central Bank could just unleash some credit, pr- pr- provide it to Greece, and this banking crisis that's in Greece would be over. There would be no immediate pressure. But the ECB does not answer to the European Union broadly. It answers to Germany. And that's that's the basic problem. Any final thoughts on this? I think it's just it, it, it's really interesting to look at right now the fact that the United States is at least ostensibly slightly more uh, lenient about Greece. Um, but as Zach and I reported, they haven't taken any concrete actions to push Europe in that direction. And sources close to, to Treasury policy believe that that is because uh, the United States wants the cooperation of Russia in these matters. And so once again, we're getting uh, tied up by having well, the, the our cooperation left hand of, of, of Germany with Russia. We, we don't actually want to Sorry. cooperate. The, with the Russia, cooperation yeah. of, of Germany specifically right. on, on containing Russia. And so we're getting hamstrung. Our, our right hand is getting hamstrung by our left hand in that regard. I, I think it's, I think Americans should care even if we don't have economic skin in the game, because this is about the future of um, social democracy everywhere. Right. And, and the right wing here in the United States is using this to say that the model is flawed and failed. And when one economic crisis causes political disarray in one part of the united Western world, it's not long before we feel those, these, those effects elsewhere. That's true. All right. Daniel Marins, tell us where we can follow you on Twitter. At Daniel Marins, but here's the important thing. At Jacobine Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hammer and sickle. No. Uh, Daniel Marins. M-A-R-A-N-S. Marins. It's a very confusing last name to, to pronounce. Just right. think Dan Marins and you'll be able to find him. Well, sort of, but you'll have to remember Daniel. Full name, Daniel, M-A-R-A-N-S. All right. We'll you guys can right. FF me for the podcast. <laughs> Follow Daniel. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. 
Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. Okay, so we're back, and now we are joined by one of our favorite people, Jessica Schulberg. Hi, guys. How are you? Yeah. Jessica, what's up, man? Well, there might be an Iran deal by 1 o'clock. Nah, surely not. Surely not, yeah. Um... Surely we haven't done it again where we've like done a podcast segment, <laughs> and after we recorded it, the news on the segment will completely change. But that is possible, or at least render what we say completely irrelevant and old. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Get, so, uh, let's, let's, let's saddle up for this ride into possible irrelevance. So aside from the question of whether there is imminent nuclear war uh, with Iran. Is there uh, imminent nuclear war with Iran? Uh, Ask Tom Cotton. Okay. So, so one thing that I have found confusing about this process is it seemed like we had this done like three or four months ago, that there was this agreement. What? And, and they had this deal and it was going to be fine and they were just going to work out the details and then it's been kind of crazy. So, so think, like, what happened? I think the March 31st deadline, the deadline for the political framework for a final nuclear agreement um, was somewhat overhyped because, I mean, there's nothing really all that binding about it. It was sort of the idea that if you leave this huge, super controversial, super technical, super challenging process to all be decided on at this one time, June 30th was the deadline that we missed, um, then everything will just explode. So the idea was to set a benchmark and say, okay, we're going to have all the political things solved by March 31st. And when they say political, they mean kind of like what's on the table for sanctions relief, what facilities in Iran can stay open, what type of research and development are they going to be allowed to do. And then the goal was that without that out of the way, it would be easier to get into the deeper, um, more skeletal that's the opposite, not skeletal. The early owner is skeletal. It'd be easier to get into the nitty gritty of what needs to be done to actually make this deal. Now, of course, we're talking about in the sense that it's like deeper in, right? right. Like more core. That's what I was thinking. I'm glad you followed <laughs> me on that. Now, when we talk about a political framework where mm-hmm. think all the policies are put to bed. We mean, of course, between those people in the room, because obviously there's an enormous faction of political people here in the United States who will <laughs> say, okay, so what we think sanctions should be is never lifted. What right, we right. think. Uh, as far as facilities that produce energy, Iran is they shouldn't ever, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 uh, obviously Iran should just like not agree to any kind of. And they should have three branches of government and right. elect lots of nice <laughs> white. And love men, Americans, you know. love and American. probably give us their oil. Recognize Israel. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was funny was I think also that part of the strategy was. Kind of so, give people a taste of what's coming, and then you have two months to sort of rally right. support and say, look at all these things they've agreed to up front. This is great. Right. And in the immediate aftermath, like early April, you did see a lot of people, I mean, like former CIA directors coming out and saying, like, this is pretty good. Like, I'm surprised everyone agreed to all this. If they if they hold up to this, then we're on, we're on a pretty good track. And then slowly but surely over the next coming weeks, people kind of came out and said, no, this is a disaster. This isn't. This doesn't go strong enough. This just kind of curbs their program temporarily, but allows them to absolutely, without any equivocation, have nuclear weapons in 15 years. And, well, and does it does it say that no, no problem they'll have, a, they'll have a bomb in 15 years? John Brennan, the current CIA director, says that it's a complete. What was the word he used? Complete misrepresentation, or oh, he said disingenuous to say that this guarantees Iran will have nuclear weapons in 15 years. 
Brennan's a pretty Brennan's trustworthy guy. And Brennan's not exactly a dove. I don't know if I'd call him trustworthy, but I wouldn't <laughs> say he's a dove. <laughs> I don't mine. think he uh, has a has a lot of. Uh, when we say that, we mean that at the end of this, uh, if if we enter into a successful agreement with Iran, mm-hmm. it puts them in the position where the soonest possible time that they can technologically and economically gin up a nuke mm-hmm. is 15 years. So the idea is It's that so weird to think these... about that, by the way. You know, when you think about the fact that we have nuclear weapons and ostensibly the possibility of educating people in the world that has come before, it's, it's kind of amazing to think that, like, any nation is 15 years away from making a nuke. What, right. What is it that makes it so that Iran is is X amount of years away from being able to make it. Well, so the way it is is that four and 15 years is sort of like a projected timeline that hasn't necessarily been pinned down. But the idea is that the longest that some of these restrictions in terms of you can only enrich uranium up to this percent and you need to enrich it higher than that to create bomb fuel, that restriction will stay in place for X number of years, maybe 15. Um, You can only spend this many thousands of centrifuges, which couldn't possibly get you to enough uranium to have a bomb. And there's all sorts of restrictions like that on their program that can't really be in place indefinitely because they have a a right as any member of the NPT, ostensibly, to enrich uranium for peaceful purposes. Um, So at the end of this agreement period, when it expires, the idea is that they, it's on a free-for-all, they go back to the same kind of rules and regulations that are placed on quote-unquote normal members of the NPT, which says you can't have a nuclear program, you just can't use it to make bombs. And there still are inspections and there still are reporting requirements. But kind of skeptics say, like, well, they've been a member of the NPT for years, and that didn't really stop them from doing covert activities that are dangerous to us. Okay, so, so, all right. So we, ha- we, we had a framework agreement in the past. There was a period of time where people were sort of impressed by what we'd achieved during that framework agreement. And then there was a, a backlash to the people who were impressed. It's mm-hmm. kind of... Iran, like all things, went through its Amy Schumerization. Right, right. Where, like, first you're like, wow, that's great. What you're doing is great. And then someone says, no, secretly what you're doing sucks. And it's awful <laughs> and the worst. So when do we uh, – are we going to get to the period where there's a backlash to the backlash? Where is the – um where has the actual negotiations gone since? Have they gone productive or they've gone toward the toilet? Uh, that depends who you ask. I mean, I think – I'm asking you. I think you so could say that not dependent on anything. <laughs> I'd say that you could say they've gone in, in a productive manner, just in the sense that nobody's walked out; it hasn't blown up. I mean, a lot of the negotiations in the room are kept quiet and in the room, and there's surprisingly few weaks. I think I understand they're all eating a lot of like skittles or something. Twenty pounds of string cheese string just by the U.S. Wow. negotiating team alone. I mean, as of yesterday, so today, like, who knows? We could be inching towards. In 30. a general sense, when motherfuckers be eating string cheese, it means that something good is. I happening. mean, I think I could eat twenty pounds of string cheese in a week. So. But could you do it when you're angry? Could oh, you do I could it when eat even more when I'm angry. Like, if you were really mad at me, could how much string cheese could you well, eat? Well, it depends if it's like like when I was a kid, string cheese is barely even cheese. But now I've seen they've got like pepper jack string cheese and like all these very. Yes, when I think fancy cheese, I think pepper jack. So there's no emotional. So speaking only for yourself, speaking only for yourself, there's no emotional state in which I could put you that would deter you from eating string cheese. If I could pull it off into strings, no. If I had to eat it like chunks, like bite into it, I don't think I could. Do yeah, it. how do you eat string cheese when you're like in the room, like like, like playing like, <laughs> like with Iranian negotiators? You're like, I'm just taking a bite of it. Like, you eat it they like like there's two, which is like, also like a slim gym. Like, Maybe it's like therapeutic to gradually peel apart your food <laughs> See, in this very sounds, tender manner. So it's very super villainy. I so I guess <laughs> I guess there's really no way for us to properly gauge the mood of the room 
by noting how much string cheese or Twizzlers they're eating. No, something that critics would sort of point mm-hmm. to is every once in a while the Ayatollah of Iran will give these speeches during Friday prayers and occasionally say things like death to America and sort of um, announce these red lines that aren't really realistic. He's, he's like Ariana Grande in that <laughs> Exactly. He can't really listen to it. He wants to lick our donuts and <laughs> right. tell us that we're terrible. But he'll say, you know, we need sanctions relief all at once, up front, no matter what. There's no way that they can ever come into, that the inspectors, nuclear inspectors, can ever come into our military sites. And I think the Obama administration's done a pretty good job of kind of quietly telling people, you know, you can't freak out over every single thing people say. This is... This is a negotiation. This is partially propaganda. you got to win the support of your people from both sides. And, like, if he really wanted to blow up the negotiations, he would have pulled out his negotiators by now. So Right. I mean, the, there's, there's also, I mean, the United States has, for a long time in foreign policy, we have all of these people who say crazy things about foreign policy while, while negotiations are going on. And those people are in Congress. So there, there are people like Louis Gohmert who talks sometimes, mm-hmm. and it actually does affect often, things in, yeah. in other countries. So they're like, wait, this congressman from Texas, he said a thing. Mm-hmm. It's got to be important, right? And they don't know that It's Louis- like, nah, no one listens to Well, I think the difference is because you do see um, the parliament there passing laws that do say things like that. Like, you can't come into our military sites. You can't mm-hmm. – all sorts of things. I think the difference that people would point to is, you know, this is the Ayatollah. This is the head. This is the guy that has overarching power over every, everything. But what I think you have to look at is – how many things has he said in the past that he's then been showing willingness to compromise on? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's all part of a game. There's still a chance, of course, that in the end... Everything will go to shit. Everything will go to yeah, shit. Yeah. Iran won't agree to enough things mm-hmm. to, for the Obama administration to be satisfied pursuing yeah. a deal. How do we? How does the Obama administration move on from that possibility? Because I would, I would, based on what there, I've been reading, I would say that that's still a pretty strong possibility of happening. It all ends the, with no deal. What the Obama administration's sort of been angling itself to do is that in the event of collapse of talks, the Obama administration wants to make sure that the U.S. doesn't look like the ones to blame. We don't want to be seen as the ones that were too difficult, too intransigent, too unwilling to compromise. So all these people that sort of accuse the Obama administration of being overly acquiescent of the Iranians. Um, it's kind of part of a strategy so that if and when talks do collapse, um, Obama can say, look, we did everything we could. We were reasonable and good faith negotiators, and they just weren't willing to meet us at the table. And from there, the hope is that you could bring along the rest of the international community to increase sanctions against Iran in addition to an already extremely expansive. I mean, we would definitely team. we'd definitely be able to like bait the international community into that process by saying we got some Twizzlers. Right. Our, our string cheese, the pepper jack string right. cheese. We have a huge... Huge string cheese industry here. Any kind of, I mean, I would, I would, I would imagine that probably, you know, all presidents are quite legacy obsessed, and that Obama would like to secure the det- this deal, if no other reason that. Um, but if if he's unable to, would, is there a political fallout he has to face for not being able to bring? Oh Obama? yeah, I mean, even separately from just the the six countries negotiating with Iran right now, um, once if they do reach an agreement, then they have to turn over. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The text of the agreement to Congress, and Congress has now two months probably um, to sort of read over, ask questions, hold hearing, bring in a lot of lunatics to tell them why Iran is the worst. And eventually can choose to either vote on a resolution of disapproval, approval, or to just walk away. Um, if they passed a resolution of disapproval, well, it would get vetoed. But then if they could override the veto with a two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate, they actually sort of revoke Obama's ability to waive sanctions on Iran that were first enacted by Congress. Um, and not all the sanctions relief will be in that category, but even the U.S. being unable to kind of hold up its end of the deal 100 percent could, you know, could, could potentially sink the entire deal. Um, so they face that backlash potentially, although it seems unlikely that it will happen. Um, and then even further than that, I mean, it would just sort of show it would really kind of upend the Obama administration's entire sort of foreign policy outlook. Like he came into office in 2009 and said, you know, we don't shun countries anymore. We don't shun North Korea. We don't shun Iran. We need to kind of embrace these countries as equal partners and meet them halfway, and that'll ensure our security. And he was really criticized for going out on a limb and doing that. And I think that a failure to reach an agreement, it would sort of give a lot of ammunition to his critics that said he was just so eager to get a deal and so naive about the obstacles to reaching such a deal. Uh Absent a deal, mm-hmm. how do you contain Iran's nuclear ambitions? <laughs> well, the thing is, there isn't really a great alternative. So, uh, yeah, the sanctions have been in place for a long time. Sanctions right? aren't doing shit. There's not really much more that the U.S. can can sanction Iran. I mean, I suppose there's other countries that could step up um, their own embargoes against Iran, but we're, we've kind of reached a tipping point on sanctions. Um, so that's sort well, of there's always war, right? So that leaves military action. Um, it's pretty unlikely, especially under the Obama administration, that you'd see a rush to war. Um, With Israel, it's a little bit more likely. Israel doesn't have the same military capacity that we do, so even... No one does. Exactly, yeah. So even our own intelligence um, officials say that we couldn't totally destroy Iran's nuclear program. We could only set it back a number of years. Um, The Israelis could probably set it back even less, maybe two to three years. And some... And start World War III. Wouldn't a military... Uh, excursion to destroy Iran's nuclear capabilities, even if it was successful, only spur Iran to try to develop nuclear capabilities? I mean, it would sort of um, it would sort of legitimize, well, first of all, it doesn't claim that it wants nuclear weapons, which is an important thing to say, because I think that gets lost in this debate, but it would sort of legitimize um, any claim that they might want to have to nuclear weapons. They say, you know, 
But right next door to Israel, they have nuclear weapons. They're not part of the NPT. They're not subject to any type of inspections or oversight on their nuclear program. They're backed by the U.S., which has the largest nuclear arsenal. And they're both extremely hostile to us. Like, why the hell should we not have nuclear weapons? We haven't invaded any countries. Like, all of our wars have been defensive. Well, um, if you forgive, perhaps do, do, do. terrorism, Yemen, and right? But I'm saying, I'm saying that would be that would be their response. Like, right. this is why we need sure. because they have traditionally relied on unconventional uh, ways of spreading influence and fighting wars, right. and it would be sort of out of character for them to kind of develop this extremely. Um, conventional offensive method of fighting wars, but this would sort of. But I mean, that's one of the reasons why the prospect of war with Iran, I think, is is so frightening because it's not just war between the United States and Iran, where the mm-hmm. U- U.S. Or has even more Israel guns, and Iran. right? Yeah. It's it's war between all of the proxy states and regimes mm-hmm. that Iran works with. It's the Syrian regime. It's Hezbollah, which has arguably more control than the Lebanese army in Lebanon. I mean, it's Hamas. It would totally upend the prospects of a two-state solution if there are any prospects in Israel and Palestine. I mean, it would have. And Iran's allies are not just in the Middle East. I mean, right. you, have, you have other countries Russia. in yeah, Russia, right. China. yeah, <clears throat> and it would be in Brazil. And it so it would be pretty terrible. So it'd be the worst. So ultimately, maybe the one thing that's keeping Iran out of the toss around a bunch of nukes game mm-hmm. is the fact that they're entangled in their own uh, geopolitical Shit. alliances themselves. It could be that. It could also be a calculation. I mean, um, you know, real old white political theorists have often said that most countries that get nuclear weapons, it then leads to instability, and they would sort of point to India-Pakistan sort of erupting once either country got nuclear weapons. And the Iranians are aware of this. I mean, whether they honestly agree with it, um, there have been fatwas issued, kind of like religious edicts, saying that we are completely opposed to nuclear weapons. And it wasn't even just on a, a moral humanitarian basis. Like, they've pointed to other countries who have watched their entire foreign policy go to shit once they had nukes. I mean, it makes you a target. It makes you extremely vulnerable. And even if they did develop a nuclear program, it would be so modest in comparison to that of their enemies that it wouldn't it wouldn't really serve any competitive purpose. Yeah, I, I've always sort of seen it like owning nukes is like that kind of like, I won, I won the, the Powerball lottery. It's like, it seems good. Right. It seems good to have this. But like I think I tend to think that there's like an an enormous uh, like shit tornado that hits anyone. Great until you wake up in the gutter, lottery, or or gets nuclear weapons. What is the essence of what's going to happen today in a short time that's going to make perhaps everything we said today irrelevant? Uh, Hopefully, Carrie gets up at one o'clock, which is now less than an hour away. And says, good news, guys. Iran agreed to significantly dismantle the majority of its nuclear program for 10 to 15 years. In exchange, we're going to give them some sanctions relief. So that's where we might end up today. And some Care Bears. We're also going to set them some And if we've got any leftover Twizzlers. That's where we might end up today. That's an, that's an optimistic outlook. I think uh, they could announce another extension. Although I, don't, I don't think they would do it in the form of this formal, highly anticipated statement. But they do have another 12 hours until their most recent self-imposed deadline, or they could say, you know, it it didn't work. Okay, well, <laughs> Iran, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Care Bears and Twizzlers. <laughs> and string cheese. Keep eating that string cheese. Uh, yeah. All right, well, uh, we look forward to hearing what happens in some 40 minutes. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank I need you. To run. Jessica Scholberg's Twitter is Jessica Scholb. It's Jessica plus the letters S-C-H-U-L-B. Like bulb with a show. Yeah, oh, that's good. I should tell people that. Thanks, Jessica. We love Bye having guys. you. Thank you.
Audrey Webster lives in Clinton Township, Michigan, and nobody has been able to tell her why her food stamps went down from more than $100 a month to just $16. So here's what happened. Last year, Congress had a debate about cutting food stamps. Democrats said don't do it, but Republicans argued that food stamps were going to too many able-bodied adults who didn't have children and didn't have jobs. They pointed to a San Diego surfer who used his benefits for lobster and refused to go to work. So Congress wound up passing a bill that only cut the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program a little bit. And in a way, the people losing benefits would not understand. How convenient. Here's how they did it. To get food stamps, you have to show your income and expenses. People who were poor enough to qualify for a separate heating assistance program were automatically given a deduction from the calculation of their monthly income. So 16 states, including Michigan, had been automatically signing up every food stamp applicant for a dollar in heating assistance so they could maximize this utility deduction and thereby boost monthly food stamp benefits for thousands of people. Congress said, no more of that. So people like Audrey Webster, who have a small amount of income from Social Security, lose the deduction and wind up with the minimum food stamp benefit, and that's $16. This week, I spoke to Audrey on the phone, and here's what she had to say. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. Your food stamps got cut this year. You found out about it in February. Can you just tell us what happened? Um, I received my notice of case action, and it said my food stamps were cut to $16. And what had they been before? Uh, $181. 181 So your food stamps went down in a big way, all the way to $16, which is the federal minimum benefit. And, and the case action, what was that, like a letter in the mail? Yeah. And, and did it explain why? No, it didn't. It just said that the case action and no explanation. It said that they would be cut, that's all. So you called your caseworker. I, I actually went in. Are you, you went in to meet with somebody, and what did they tell you? They just told me that it was cut for the government's reason. She explained it. And did they, did they tell you that it was the state government or the federal government, or did they just say the government did it? You said the government. Well, they sure did. It was it was Congress. It was the farm bill that uh, members of Congress approved last year, and uh, the cut goes through this obscure uh, heat and eat program. And I've interviewed a few people who were affected in the same way that Audrey was, and you're not the only one who who didn't get a very clear explanation. So tell us, Audrey, uh, how has your life changed? since you found out about this this big reduction in food stamps in February? Well, I'm down to eating once a day. I'm diabetic. I have a few other ailments going on. But diabetics are supposed to eat to keep their sugars under control. With the eating, it's not always good, but it's not bad. So you're eating once a day instead of, I guess, several times a day. Is that right? Yeah. Your uh, your daughters are helping. You mentioned that you live uh, with one of your daughters right now, and, and she helps you get get extra food. Uh, so you you are uh, 63, and you receive about 700-something a month in uh, Social Security? Yeah, 
Yes, the 633. That's, I guess, the minimum base line for everybody. Yes. Didn't really work that long or whatever. Because I only worked maybe a couple years younger. And then some work study in college and going through school didn't really get a job after school. So uh, you've been on disability for a few years longer than you've been uh, getting Social Security retirement. Yeah. You go to the store and uh, once a month, I guess. Does do the food stamps help at all? Do you have to use the the debit card and then uh, use your cash for the rest? I don't go monthly when I get them. I try and wait a couple months so they can build up so I can get a little bit of something more. Mm-hmm. But during the time, like I said, I have a granddaughter that does chore work for me. Mm-hmm. When she gets her chore work check, she usually spends between 70 and $80 of the chore work check to help me eat when she gets it that month. With help from my granddaughter, I eat a little. Yeah. Not everything I should, you know, the vegetables and fruits and all that stuff that I need, but it helps. So your daughters and your granddaughters are helping you out. Uh, you've got the family safety net going. What do you think of the fact that the government made this decision to reduce food stamp benefits for some people? Well, from what I was understanding when I heard the talk of it was that they were going to take it from the people that were able to work and could take care of themselves otherwise. I didn't know it was going to affect elderly and maybe people that had handicaps or disabilities or something that couldn't really fend for themselves. That's right. They they did always talk about the, the able-bodied adults without dependents uh, who, who were targets for cutting food stamps. So you were surprised. Yes, I was. And uh, Very much could you tell us just a little bit about uh, your disability? Um, I have asthma, diabetic, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis. I have some stenosis in my neck, um, some spurring and herniated discs in my back. So I have a lot of things going on: carpal tunnel, bad knees. So it's not like you're gonna. It's not like you're gonna go out and and do some work and you know, mow some lawns or something like that because your food stamps went down. I'm restricted from working. My doctors won't allow me to work. I've asked a couple times if I can work, and they restrict me from working. Uh, well, all right. Uh, Audrey Webster of Clinton Township, Michigan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We are going to talk about the Grateful Dead, and, and you were referred to us as somebody who is a a fan of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, so, so Tucker Carlson, how did, how did you get into the Grateful Dead? Uh, well, I grew up in California, and the Grateful Dead are from California, and I, um, I'm 46 now, so I you know, was not around for the early 70s, which I think most people acknowledge is like their creative apogee. But um, you know, I was around a lot of people who liked the Grateful Dead. I saw my first show when I was 15, uh, one of the New Year's shows at the San Francisco Civic Center. I went with my brother, who was 13, and we got dropped off there by a family friend with no tickets. And I was just standing there, and some guy walked up to me and handed me a ticket. And so I went by myself, and it just completely blew my mind. I thought it was amazing. I loved the music, and I, um, and I liked him ever since. So that was, what, 31 years ago. 
and I I went to about fifty dead shows um, up until ninety one, and uh, and I just I continue to listen to them every day. I mean, I liked other things. I love bluegrass, and I, you know, like other kinds of music. But I thought the Grateful Dead was kind of the most interesting music I'd ever heard, and I still feel that way. So let's go back. That first show was in in uh, California in 1983, 84, 84, and you were dropped off there as a 15 year old, and you went to this show by yourself. Like what? What did you do? You had you got a, a free ticket and you just waited among the the hippies who were there. Yeah, I mean somebody um, handed. Literally, I was standing out in the park. They always played the New Year's show at the, in Oakland, but that one year for some reason they were at the Civic Center right in downtown San Francisco, and there was this kind of huge scene going on in the park across the street, and you know really sort of over the top scene. And I've always you know, I don't know, I'm interested in stuff. Even then I was interested in different kinds of stuff. So my brother and I were wandering around, and literally out of nowhere, this guy walks up and says, would you like a ticket for free? And I said, yeah, I would. Thank you. And what kind of... So I, Go ahead. Well, and I left my brother. This was obviously pre-cell phone. I left him outside um, <laughs> to an uncertain fate, and uh, I only hooked up with him at like 3 in the morning, actually. I couldn't find him after the show, but I finally did. He's still alive. How how was he your older brother or your younger brother? No, he was my younger brother. He was thirteen. So were you like the cool older brother who was getting him into music? Did did you have like a, a you know a cousin or somebody? I always feel like usually someone's got some sort of musical mentor that that turns them on no, to weird stuff. No, I really didn't. My um, my father always treated us like we were the same age, so I it never really felt like he was my younger brother. He was pretty advanced for his age anyway. Of course. Did, did it feel like a like a dangerous kind of countercultural thing at that point in time? Because when I think of the dead, I think of like crazy hippies, like uh, Hate Ashbury, late sixties, early seventies. Like you mentioned, I, I don't really have a like a a concept of what it was like in the in the eighties. You said you saw them like fifty times. Did, did you feel like it? What did it feel like that first show? And, and did it change over time while you were going to see them? Well, I mean, yes, it did, and I quit going as a result of those changes. But um, yeah, I mean hallucinogens can be really scary. I mean, and the heavy-duty, you know, LSD is not something to fool around with at all. And it can really hurt you. And I I know people who've been hurt by it. I know one person who was killed by it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not something you want to play with at all. And people were pretty reckless in the way they were using it, and, and other hallucinogens, too, um, for sure. But I never felt there was never, like, a, a violent undercurrent or anything like that. I never felt imperiled physically or anything. I mean, I certainly saw people do really stupid things that had lasting consequences, definitely. But, um, and I learned that, you know, really young, you want to be careful of stuff like that. But, but I mean, I mean, I don't necessarily mean even drug culture specifically, but just that it, it, I think of the, the dead as being this outsider group for a long time. But eventually they became just wildly, wildly popular. And I don't I, I don't know. I don't I don't I'm not that familiar with the music because it's never been something that really spoke to me. But do you, do you feel like there's still that that outsider uh, uh, vibe to them or, or is that is that part of the culture or, or did did well, that change? Were... Yeah, that changed a lot. It changed when um, the, one of their later albums came out that I was never that interested in. I was never... They resisted trends, basically, for the full 30 years they toured. They kind of did their own thing, and American musical taste finally caught up to them in the, in the late 80s, 
I'm, we're interested in how the uh, experience of going to shows changed because we've had this impression of Grateful Dead now as something like the New York Times described the the uh, dads in their 40s and 50s who have tons of disposable income chartering private jets and buying these $900 tickets to the reunion show this summer. Uh, at some point, it, there must have been a change from this radical counterculture scene to this more mainstream scene, and I wonder if that gels with the change you saw over the time that you went there, or or if that happened after. I mean, I, I think that was starting to happen. I mean, again, I was never that interested in the scene. I mean, I you know, I was a kid. I liked partying probably too much. Um, I don't drink now, if that gives you some indication, you know. Uh, but I was never there for the scene. You know, I never felt like I was going to find enlightenment at a dead show or anything. I, um, I I did always appreciate the fact that they never had a political message. You know, they were never forcing their views down your throat, which is a temptation if you're a rock star to, like, use your platform to espouse whatever crackpot views you have. They never did that. I felt like they treated the audience with respect. But I was never, again, going to be part of some movement or something, or I didn't wear tie-dye clothes or anything like that. I always felt like... There were, there were some posers at shows who were trying to relive an era they never experienced or something. But I always found that kind of sad and beside the point. The music itself, the show, the dancing, the drums, you like rhythm. I mean, they had two drummers, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann, who were just fantastic. And they had a segment in every show called Drums, where the drummers would just go off and explore various rhythms. And it was just, oh, it was, again, if you like rhythm, it, there was nothing like it anywhere else. Now, uh, Tucker Carlson, you are an elite media person. Uh, do you think you're typical in any way of Grateful Dead fans now or, or in the past, or do you think that you are, are uh, uh, an anomaly? I, I don't think you are. I think there are a lot of Washington people who are big Grateful Dead fans, but I wonder what you think. You know, I don't – well, first of all, the elite media person is an oxymoron. <laughs> you, know. you know what I mean, man. <laughs> media establishment. <laughs> We're in it. Not inherently impressive. But no, I mean, I think, I, I, well, I'll tell you this. When I go there, look, if you're showing up at a Dark Star Orchestra event at the 930 Club, you know, you're obviously into it because you're not, you're not going for the scene or anything. The scene is kind of like a little bit depressing. You know, it's like old people. So you really find out who's into it when you go to these things. And yeah, I've seen a bunch of people I know. Wow, I didn't know you were into this. Yeah, you know, they are. It's funny. And they're like they're like people, you know, in, you know, khakis and tennis shoes and button down shirts, like going crazy at these things. Um, it's fantastic. the dancing was always part of it, for me anyway. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. And I love the drum circles. I know they're easy to make fun of and everything, but the you know, the congas, they would always have them outside the shows or in the arena hallways or whatever, between sets and for me, that was always one of the highlights. Again, I love rhythm. I love drums. And, um, oh, man. Yeah, I've run into a bunch of people. I'm not going to tell you who because I don't want to embarrass them. Well, so do you think that this is something people can still get into? Like, like if, I mean, Jerry, Jerry's gone. I guess the band is, is reuniting in some format this, this summer. But, like, is, is, this a, is, is it a thing that can be restarted or is it something that you had to experience uh, you know, the first time around? Totally. I mean, totally. I mean, you know, Bob Marley died in 1982. People, you know, born in 1992. So, you know what I mean? I mean, let me put it this way. My son, who's 18, um, 
gave me or pointed showed me the way to the Grateful Dead iPad app, which is like an app that connects the database of all their live shows. And I was like, well, how do you know about that? And he said, well, because I listen to it all the time. No, in fact, was, no, we were traveling. And he, I said, what are you listening to on your phone? And he showed me it was this Grateful Dead app. So, yeah, my son's a fan. He grew up listening to it in the car because my wife and I both play it in the car a lot. But, um, and there's a serious channel, uh, as you know, the Grateful Dead channel. So they, they were exposed to it, but at least one of my kids is a big fan, yeah. So, uh, Tucker Carlson, I, what I've been trying to do, what we've been trying to do is get a grip on why people like the Grateful Dead so much, since we uh, we are non-fans. And I think I'm starting to, to understand it, and let me run this by you. It's, it's fun to go to shows and be with a group of people, and you're enjoying the music. The music is cheerful. The music is apolitical, and it's just kind of a, uh, a, a carnival of cheerful, apolitical music. And there's, and th- 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 am, I, am I getting somewhere with that, with those? I guess. I mean, I guess you could say the same thing about Katy Perry. Not that I've ever heard, you know, I wouldn't know Katy Perry if she got in the chair with me, but I know that she's like a famous singer of some kind, some teenage idol or whatever. Yeah. But, so I would say it's a little more than that. I think the, the music is is American in a really deep way, actually. It, it draws on all kinds of distinctly American, here I'm sounding like some kind of phony, but it's true, American musical traditions. And so, you know, if you grew up in this country, you'll instantly recognize the origins of the music. But I also think it's experimental in a cool way and interesting in a cool way, and it's, it's kind of brilliant, some of it, actually. Now, again, you have to wade through. There's definitely some crap and you know, they were self-indulgent people, and as a group, a self-indulgent band in a lot of ways, obviously. And some of them died from self-indulgence. But they were also supremely talented and disciplined about their music, and they produced some stuff that, like, is kind of without peer as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Just to give you some, some idea of what you're up against, I mean, Arthur and I both grew up into, like, the D.C. punk scene. So, like, we are, we are about as far removed on the, uh, on the musical spectrum as I think you can be in some ways. But in other ways, what you're saying, I, I don't know. It, do, it does sound like there is still so, sort of, like, a culture around this that, that like, would be, would be fun to be a part of. Um, and punk music is like that in a lot of ways where, like, you know, a lot of the songs sound the same. A lot of the bands sound the same. Um, but but people go because they want to be part of a, a like a, a community that shares that, that just is centered around that interest. Um, which I was never interested in like being part of the community. I mean, I at all. I already had a community of people I love, you know, and still do. I just thought the music. I mean, to the extent that there was like an ideology or philosophy behind the music, and there wasn't really, but it it definitely, I would say elevated the individual over the group. It was non-collective at all. You know, it was about individual expression, and I've always believed that. That's always kind of defined my worldview, and so I, I definitely connected with that. Um, but again, the music is just fantastic, and also not, I mean, I don't think it's mindlessly cheerful. You know, it's not like Simon and Garfunkel 1963 or so, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not feeling groovy or something it's but it's cheerful in the sense that it's you know not you know it's about the things that matter i guess in life. whenever I, whenever i hear this kind of music come on at a bar or something i'll be like oh man the allman brothers sound like shit tonight in this recording and someone will tell me that's actually the grateful dead at cornell in 77 and i'll be uh, i'll be like oh 
Oh, I would rather <laughs> listen to the Almond Brothers. You know, well, the Almond Brothers are fantastic. I love the Almond Brothers. Um, I've seen the Almond Brothers too, and they're great. I mean, they're and actually, they are kind of related in some ways. But I would, I mean, the Grateful Dead. Have, there's a pretty high barrier to entry. Actually, that's one of the reasons that they never did well on the radio. And it's one of the reasons that they shined at shows, because you were stuck there for three hours and marinating in this music, and you could kind of have time to get it. But I, would, I think it's worth it. I mean, for one thing, there's no other band that has a corpus of music this large. There's just a lot of Grateful Dead music to listen to, a lot. And because, again, it's not confined to albums, hardly. And, and a lot of it's high quality. They taped Betty Tanner Jackson, who was their soundboard operator, taped every single show from the soundboard for like 30 years. So they have the tapes, and they've released a lot of them. And so it's very high quality, and it's really interesting, and it just takes, just set aside an hour or two hours and listen to it. Like on the next time you're on a plane, you know, and get like a friend who's into the dead, tell me six tunes to listen to. And that'll probably take two hours right there because the song's long. <laughs> now we've done that. I mean, I've done that. It doesn't, that doesn't work. If you're already, oh, of course uh, it does. Come on now. Well, I, last I question. If I have some, me, you're totally resistant to the allure of the Grateful Dead. You're like that weird anomaly. You're like the the Kenyan prostitute who never got AIDS. Like, is just something in you that like won't allow the Grateful Dead to penetrate. I am telling you, I I watched a, like thirty minutes of that show, the Cornell performance. I we listened to the chart toppers, and. Uh, you know, we tried. Truck toppers are just kind of thin. I mean, honestly, if it's like trucking Casey Jones, Touch of Grey, I mean, that's yeah. all pallid tunes. But listen to, like, Cassidy and see if something in your soul, your hardened, desiccated, <laughs> journalistic soul doesn't stir the light. I don't know. It always just sounds like doop do 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 it meanders toward a final destination. I guess that's the way to put it. Like, it seems random, but actually it's heading somewhere. It's, I mean, I think we just have to do it more, and it may be that we're people who it just doesn't speak to, but we're going to try and find a way. I mean, we're giving, it a, we're giving it an open-minded shot. Well, Tucker, thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Daily Caller Editor-in-Chief Tucker Carlson and HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Daniel Marins, and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Please check us out on the iTunes store for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.